Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, May 27th, 2013. In the U.S., it's Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day, everyone. It all began with light and an honest desire to change the way we see the world. I believe we are ready for something new. I believe we can do better. I believe in a sustainability that saves the environment without reducing our quality of life. There exists a beautiful balance in nature that we can tap into, a harmony between science and art where great products are born. Let me show you. Richard, you are the creator of the Blue Laser Lamp. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you tell me a little bit about this blue laser lamp? You know, we still use lighting like campfires, more or less. An early man trying to light up the dark, and then they call it modern because it's an LED or we're using electricity. But the problem is it's the source footprint that you're lighting. And as a result, you light up the destination. So on our Kickstarter page, you'll see that the laser lamp actually sits on the dresser, and then you see what the results are in the room. But the picture on the dresser, the laser lamp area is not lit up. And so it's a unique type of lighting. I'm trying to understand the physics behind what you're saying. You light up the destination. Could you put that in simpler terms, maybe? Okay. uh, When you buy a lamp and you want to read, why should the lamp behind your head light up behind your head instead of lighting up the book? Right. And in this situation, since we have lasers... We can send out about 400 beams. They're coherent light. They don't interact with anything in the air, so you don't actually see the the beams unless you have smoke, and those beams hit the destination area, thereby lighting it up. Can this light be used for reading purposes? Because I saw that it's blue, and it didn't seem as intense, I guess, as what we normally use. I'm trying to figure out, can it produce more light, more intensity, I guess? Blue light is not a very good light to read on. If somebody printed text, it's better to have the text black than blue. It's a well-known study on that. Right. But the intent of the laser lamp is to light up media rooms, uh, a tent so it's mobile, a night light, a safety light. What's really interesting about the safety light is that these beams actually go through smoke. If you had a fire in your home and the, the hallway had filled up with smoke, if you had an emergency light and it went on, you'd get this blinding light that you get when you drive like with snow, but instead with the uh, firefly, it's a safety light, you would actually see the hall pretty clear. In your video, you talk about a balance between science and art. What do you mean by that? There are a few aspects of art that we're doing. The actual container or the body of firefly is patent pending, and it enables you to position the optimal projection, which is the science. But on the other hand, you can actually hold it in your hand. We have a passive cooling system, again, science, and now we're creating something that's the size of your hand that's mobile. Right. The other aspect, it presents a very interesting way to light up a destination area. So that's sort of a cross between science and art. Okay, so if I understand you correctly, it's more of a directional light. Correct. You Like you point and it lights that area, that path. So, i.e., I guess, like a laser would do, except that you're using the laser to light instead of to scan or, you know, a thousand, a million different uses that lasers are used for. Yes. Okay. How long have you been working on this project? We 
we've been working on this about two plus years, actually. It says on your bio that you've been in laser technology since 1979 and that you have over 60 U.S. patents. Correct. Has there been some sort of breakthrough recently that has allowed you to create the blue laser lamp? There have been a few breakthroughs. One is now we have uh, semiconductor laser diodes. And the second thing is the ability for producing optics that can actually disperse the laser evenly. That would be a safe operation. And the third thing is the passive cooling system that we have, which is a, a new concept. It uses a little bit of nature, and that's, that's part of the nature and science. It's actually a flower in its shape. It's a casted zinc part, and we're actually going to have a plaque so you can see it, and it looks like a flower. And this is a very unique way of spreading the heat from the, uh, the laser diode. Yeah, you keep mentioning this passive cooling system. When you talk about it, it sounds as though it's something recent, some aha moment or, you know, some eureka that has allowed you to create this product. Is that true? Yes, it is. And it's my creation. I tried to solve the heating problem. A lot of products that you might see out there that do gimmicky lasers that draw and, and maybe there's some, some lights that make a constellation. They all use fans or a large chunk of metal to try to cool the laser, but eventually the laser gets run away and burns out. So somebody had to come up with something that would passively cool this thing. And you're the mind behind that. Yes, correct. Okay, we're talking about lasers. We're talking about heat whenever we talk about lasers, and you're talking about your your invention as far as the passive cooling of it. Could I keep this on, like, say if I used it for a nightlight for my children or something, could I keep this on for 12 hours? Yes, we've run this thing for 24-7 for over a year, and you can keep it on for hours. It doesn't get hot that a human can actually touch it and, and feel any heat at all. Richard, your product, the blue laser lamp, seems beautiful. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. piano, guitar, playing a kunga or a djembe. Dancers, dancers could use this. You know how DJ Grandpa always says he's the world's biggest music fan, but he, you know, I digress. I also do inventions, gamers, filmmakers, authors, everything. But this guy is kind of in the middle. He's an inventor as well as a musician, Ed Bettinelli. He has a device called the Thumb Thang. It's a hands-free shaker. The world of drummers I hear is on fire trying to get their hands on it. And it's on Kickstarter. So, Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks, DJ. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Can you tell the audience, what is this whole Thumb Thang all about? Basically, it's a shaker. It's something I came up with uh, one night late here in the studio when I was just going through my normal routine of just practicing and shedding. And um, I'm always looking for ways to create texture and, you know, lushness to my playing. And a lot of times in doing so, I'd be strapping things on different parts of my body to create a, another sound. So you're a drummer by trade? I am a drummer by trade. I uh, play uh, 
you know, I play bass guitar as well and right. a little piano, but my principal instrument is percussion and, and primarily trap set, drum set. So, you know, you only have four limbs to create rhythm and sound, and uh, sometimes you'd like to have a little more sound than you're able to create with just those four limbs. So in um, multitasking and strapping other pieces of percussion and uh, onto your body, right. a lot of times that jeopardizes what you normally would be doing on that instrument. So I just had this idea um, of trying to get that ability where it would not jeopardize right. what you normally would do. So you've created a hands-free device, I hear. Well, it's uh, hands-free uh because it's strapped on, you don't have to hold it. It gives you the ability to multitask because you're now playing another instrument, yeah. which is pretty unique. I mean, its I don't think there's really anything out there that gives you that same ability. How long have you been working on this hands-free shaker? Well, this is probably going into close to six years now, from its inception to uh, uh, you know getting it to the point where it was right and uh, where I actually had the prototype made, and now to this point of trying to get it funded so I can move forward. Okay, my predictable question. How has the Kickstarter community been treating you? This is my second campaign on Kickstarter for this something, and the first time I ran it close to a year ago, and I really didn't have a full understanding of what Kickstarter was about. I thought it was a platform that brought social awareness to your product. Right. And it really doesn't. You really have to have all that social awareness in line, ready to point them to your product. And it becomes a platform or a resting point just for these people to go to and then make their pledges, which is basically a pre-ordering of the product. Yes. So this time around, I, I'm getting a lot more awareness and a lot more pledging being made by people I, whom I don't know, which is really important, and, and that's a great sign. I am far from my, uh, I think I just uh, reached the 10,000 mark today, so that's uh, not close to the mark that I'm trying to get to, and I'm, sure. I'm almost at the midway point. I think the nature of this, a lot of times people don't act immediately because we're all tied up in our own personal world and yes. and so a lot of this stuff gets put on the back burner so on my end uh, you know I'm trying to reach out to people that I've already reached out to and and gently right. remind them that you know this is out there please support it and um okay so that's kind of a funny space to be in and um but that's really important now and that's what I've been consuming my uh time with what do you honestly think about the thumb thing, your inventions? And, and, and I know you're biased, so do you think it's revolutionary? Do you think it's just another accessory to the, you know, one million percussive accessories that drummers and, and percussionists have? It's revolutionary in its sense that there's really nothing out there, to my knowledge, that suits this void of being able to multitask and have something on your hand and really not be grappling with it. And like any instrument, I mean, if I change the size of my drumstick, the new stick is going to feel different in my hands for a moment until it gets, until I get, you know, I acclimate myself to it. If I adjust my stool height, it's going to feel awkward for, you know, until I acclimate myself and reaching around my kit at that height. Mm. So like anything else, 
there's an adjustment period, like any instrument, where you spend time on it, and, and then it becomes yours. And at that point, this something is definitely unique, and it stands by its own. It stands on its own. It stands by itself right now, as far as I can see. And, you know, it's funny because I am the creator of this, but the creation of this was created by me and being intrigued in playing and trying to always bring more lushness and rhythm enhancement into my playing. Mm. So it was because of those reasons that I, uh, not that I stumbled on this, because it was quite, um, once the idea came, it was very much retweaked and rethought out uh, from an engineering standpoint, but coming from a player's perspective. And I think that is one of the things that makes this as efficient as it is, because it is coming from, and it is engineered from a pers- the perspective of somebody who's actually going to be using it. Dude, it's amazing to see the creation of a new instrument, and I believe that's essentially what you've done. I want everybody out there to go to kickstarter.com and type in thumb thing. There are like three or four or five videos on the page. Check them all out. It has a great description. Ed's playing the drums, and if you can't find it on Kickstarter, we'll always have links at our website, djgrandpa.com. Ed, thanks for coming on the show. Nice talking to you, DJ. You too. DJ Grandpa here. I'm back. Uh, You know, I want to introduce you guys to a comic book enthusiast, an, an inventor, a creator. For me, you know, DJ Grandpa and all, I I know I say that too much, but the world of comic books stopped for me with the Super Friends and Superman and Batman and all that. So I'm always amazed at anyone who can think of a compelling new superhero for the world to embrace. And I have such a person. It's Mark Landry of uh, Landry Images, and he has something special. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Tell me about Bloodthirsty. One Nation Underwater, Volume 1. Bloodthirsty One Nation Underwater is an eight-issue miniseries, or collected together what we call a graphic novel, which I'm sure people are familiar with. Right. And so Volume 1 is the first four, so it's the first half of the story, which is what we're trying to raise money for on Kickstarter to create. What's the superhero's name? The hero's name is Virgil of Fleur, and... I don't know if you know anybody with the last name Lafleur, but uh, no, I where do. I come from, I do. oh, you do? Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah, in Louisiana, it's a common thing to have a, a French last name: Udro, Thibodeau, Lafleur. I know a, a girl named Pippa Lafleur. Pippa Lafleur, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a cool name. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to to create a character who you know was from Louisiana, who probably grew up with uh, very similar experiences to me and my friends, and who was affected by Katrina and all the corruption and pain that people go through in Louisiana every day uh, and decides to do something about it as a superhero. And he isn't really that, you know, super in terms of powers. He doesn't have, he's not like Superman or anything, but he's more like Batman or Robin Hood in that he's just a guy who decides to stand up to the forces that are oppressing, you know, him and his fellow citizens and take the city back. Okay. But he's not boring though. Now, he he doesn't have like those type of, he doesn't have, you know, like he can't fly or anything, but he's not boring. He does, he does have some sort of redeeming qualities that are amazing. 
Oh right, yeah. He's he he's, he was a former Coast Guard rescue swimmer. So he during Katrina, he was uh, a hero. You know, the Coast Guard in reality during Katrina, that organization was uh, the most effective organization in the aftermath. Rescued over thirty three thousand people wow. in the span of a week. Yeah. So Virgil, the main character, his backstory is that he was a Coast Guard rescue swimmer, and he tried to get to his parents and wasn't able to get to them in time. So, you know, much like Batman, it's a guy with no superpowers who has this regret and guilt about his parents being killed. In this case, it's not a, a murderer shooting them, but it's, you know, the, the forces of, of our broken society contributing right. to their death. So he has these demons and he's got post-traumatic stress when we first meet him and he's afraid of the water at this point it's 10 years after katrina it's 2015 uh, when we first meet virgil to your point the brain is one of the most powerful things there is so if i understand you correctly this guy uses his brains a great deal to accomplish you know all sorts of feats that's right it's his brains and it's really his courage it's his determination right you know there's a lot of people where i come from in louisiana who have uh have a problem with the political corruption that's there and yes. have a problem with the uh, sort of class structure of, you know, the good old boy system right. uh, and the elite sort of suppressing everybody else. But it's really difficult to find people who are willing to stand up to it or do anything about it. And it's not, it's not that they're, you know, afraid really or, or that they're cowardly. It's, it's that, you know, not everybody can figure out what to do. You don't really know how to solve the problem when it's so gargantuan and so steeped, you know, from decades of corruption. And so Virgil basically just is a guy who has nothing left to lose. And he's going to make some corrections in town if it kills him. Now, let's go from dream to reality. Now, what's your dream for this comic book series? Well, graphic novel. My dream would be basically at this point that all eight issues can be funded and produced. So I've got an artist, Ashley Witter, involved, who's very passionate about it. And she's an amazing artist, uh, if you've seen any of the drawings on the Kickstarter site. You know, as an artist, as a writer, I'm communicating what it is that I feel about, you know, my world, my, my particular, you know, view of the 7 billion people in the world. This is my view of things. And just to get people to be able to take it in and, and read it and decipher themselves if they agree or disagree. And for somebody to like, you know, really think about and consider something that they may not have before would be, you know, <laughs> more than I could imagine in terms of success. I'm not, you know, looking for it to be a bestseller or anything like that. It's something that I'm compelled to do and to get it out. And if I can get it out, I'll, I'll breathe. I listened to everything you said, but when you said you'll breathe, I was like, okay. <laughs> I understand this guy now. Yeah, there's just some things that you just you're just compelled to do, and if you if you can't do it, you can't sleep at night. You know. Hey, you're kind of like that superhero. He can't breathe until such and such is done, and you can't breathe until this graphic. Now, see, you That's tie right. it all together, man. <laughs> right, what you know. That's the artist's way. That's right, man. It's all a metaphor for life. Why don't you tell me about your supreme team? Because you already mentioned the artist. I see all over your page that you have an industry mentor talking right. about how great the superhero project is. It's a story that hadn't been told, at least in, in my opinion, 
about uh, the Hurricane Katrina. Like most of America, I would assume, I was one of those guys watching the television, asking myself, yeah, where, where is all the, the FEMA? Where, where's the release? This is my first comic book, there and I didn't want to make a bunch of, I'm sure I'm making some rookie mistakes, but I didn't want to make all of them. And somebody, you know, who's been through it could sort of guide me and help me. Uh, and I, I looked at my comics that I, that I like to read, and, uh, and American Way was one of them. And I looked, you know, where is George's Genty? I want to find this guy and see if he can, you know, help me out. And so I just reached out to him. I sent him a, a communication from his website. And uh, he said, well, yeah, let's, you know, tell me your story. And so I sat down with him and, and told him the story, and he thought it was cool. And he said, yeah, you know, just anytime you have a question, uh, give me a call or an, an email, and um, I'd be happy to tell you my advice, and you don't have to take it, but, uh, you know, this is what I would do. And he's been so great. I mean, I've just in terms of the story, he's given me other books to read, you know, right. based on the kind of story I'm trying to tell. You put a lot of thought into this, I can tell. Thanks. That's a compliment, you know. Sometimes I give twisted compliments, but that's that's a straight one. Thank you very much, sir. Last question. What does your graphic novel, Bloodthirsty, One Nation Underwater, Volume 1, what does it say about the world? Because I get that feel that you you have a an, an overarching message. Typically, I am very optimistic as a person. I, I, I have to be in order to you know chase my dreams coming from where I come from. But there is an undercurrent of sort of uh, satire in my personality as a writer and as an artist. And I do see some very nasty things in the world that people don't, in my opinion, speak up enough about. I could very easily write a comedy, but about this particular issue, a very dark satire was uh, appropriate, I think, to get the point across. And there's no, uh, no punches are pulled in this book. In my view of the world, if I see someone who's corrupt or has their foot on someone else's head or their throat, I'm going to call it out. And that person or that type of person in this comic book is really not going to have a good day. All right. You seem as though you have a little superhero in you yourself. I like Thank that. You. You're speaking up. And you're not only sitting back and watching the world go by, you're trying to take an active part and, and say some sort of commentary about it. And I want to say thank you for coming on the show, Mark Landry. It's been my pleasure, DJ Grandpa. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm here to talk about where is Carmen? Where is Carmen? I heard she's in the studio. She's part of the alternative band from San Francisco, California called Odd Owl. And they're on Kickstarter to raise money for their first album with their full band. Carmen, welcome to the show. Thank you. How can I help you get your band off the ground? We started as a full band maybe a year ago. So we're still trying to get the word out about our project. We have website, oddowlmusic.com. Right. We're on social media, Facebook, Odd Owl Music. Pretty much everything Odd Owl Music, you can find us. <laughs> <laughs> and your new album is called The Call? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of our first EP with everybody kind of on the record. When we started this group, it was a duo between me and the guitarist. Phil, and we were just making songs in my basement, have a little studio set up in my basement, recording in my garage, and then 
realize once you have drums that you can't really record in your house or the neighbors will hate you. <laughs> but yeah, it just kind of grew out of that. And we got uh, Adam about a year and a half ago. And then Steve I met through another project of a friend of a friend doing this school fundraiser for music in schools. I love you guys' music, you know, what I've heard on Kickstarter. It feels very raw, and I like that, you know. I like that it rocks, you know, so that's cool. Actually, you're listening to the rough mix on Kickstarter, so it, it is... A <laughs> it is raw. And that'd be part of the reason why. What type of music do you guys play? <laughs> I was just having this conversation the other day, because we all have these mishmash of influences that we bring together to our group, but... I would say strong ones that stand out to me are definitely like funk, world music. I'm definitely really into African, like South African music and polyrhythms filled into Talking Heads, which is also really, they're also really influenced by world music. Right. Alternative dance, like LCD Sound System, Bjork, and psychedelic pop. So kind of all of those different genres mashed together. <laughs> so you guys are all over the place and you couldn't make up your mind. Oh, yes. <laughs> all right. So that's what your new EP, The Call, is basically going to be like. It's going to be all these different styles just twisted and mashed together. Now, uh, I saw you said that you didn't have a record label. So do you guys really want a record label or do you want to do the DIY thing yourself? You know, if the right contract comes along, yes, we would definitely love to be signed, but... Definitely don't want to sign the rights of my music away. <laughs> How does it feel to perform on stage? Oh man, that's like the reason I do this. I mean, I remember this first thing we performed in Washington, which is my home state. We were playing at a friend's house and we were performing. And for the first time, I actually felt like my energy and the audience's energy was like moving back and forth. It's this crazy feeling as a musician because you can really feel when you're really connecting to someone right. from a stage. It's just something that once you do it, I mean, you never really want to, to do anything else. No, I got you. I can understand that. That must be like one of the coolest feelings in the world, you know? Like I said, to be in the key of life like that. So I wish that for you and Odd Owl, and you, you got, dudes, you got the marketing down, man. I, I love the name, man, Odd Owl. That's totally cool, man. Thanks. Okay, let's say I'm a potential backer, DJ Grandpa. You know, I, I'm a potential backer, and I, I heard you got all these unique or weird or whatever, or custom or handmade or whatever rewards. <laughs> what do you suggest for DJ Grandpa, you know, a cool reward for me to back your project? I would say probably our top things are the things that we print ourselves. So... We do t-shirts and actual posters, and we're doing kind of uh, special t-shirts that we're printing ourselves for just our Kickstarter projects that were designed by our artist, Trillian Spencer, of a spill in a giant spacesuit. <laughs> hmm. 
We also have several prints that we're offering. We have this, like, epic lady print that people seem to really like. I like the t-shirt. I think that'd be cool. Does it have an owl on it? It has a quail on it, but we do have owl ones, too. The space quail was after our, um, our song, Some People Are Spaceships. Right. It was kind of designed with that in mind, which is one of the tracks off of our new album. Last question. What is your dream? You're a dreamer. What is it? Any musician's dream is to be just doing it all the time. You know, I would, I would love to be doing, doing music all the time and being able to actually make a living doing it. <laughs> Once you find what you want to do, it's pretty hard to not keep going down that path. I can understand that. So I want everybody to go to kickstarter.com, type in Odd Owl, and it'll pull up their page. It's a pretty quirky video. And about once you get halfway in, they start rocking. And you'll see what I'm talking about, about the rawness. So, and I think you guys will really like that. So, Carmen, thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing your world. Um, you know, the space quail and all of that odd owl, you know, <laughs> for representing. Thank you for having me. having a heart attack would you know what to do if the heart's not pumping for three minutes you can start to get brain damage and then even worse you can you know you can die i just kept going until i had some kind of response and eventually he did kind of tommy welcome to the show thank you very much now the day i died your documentary that they're shooting about you about the time when your heart stopped for a certain amount of time. Were you clinically dead? Yeah. If you're getting CPR and you have to have your heart pumped, someone has to do it for you, yeah, you're clinically dead. So my flatmate did it. Stanley did a great job. He just moved in. He wasn't sure if it was a heart attack or if I was epileptic, I was having a fit. So then the first responder, which is someone on a motorbike, comes and and assesses it and they were there after 10 minutes and then they called the ambulance to come with the defibrillator which gives you the shocks so then like with all that it was like 20 minutes in and so then they were still doing cpr and then they did the shock six times and the sixth one i got my regular heart rhythm back so all in all it was 25 minutes but you don't remember any of it no i don't have any memory of the day at all waking up or like a few days when I was conscious afterwards and they had to like write me a little journal of things like if someone walked in the room they'd say this person's walked in the room so that I could like remember. I know it's a touchy question but why do you feel as though you need counselling if, if you don't remember any of The counselling was really more to do with like things like feeling like attractive to women and stuff you know like I suddenly felt like I had this thing and like how what are women gonna think now that I've got like so I wear a device and kind of like am I gonna be a weaker man you know am I gonna 
am I going to be still be fit and strong or am, am I going to be impaired and all those kind of questions you know and three years later how's that turning out no I feel good I feel strong and lady scenes going okay I don't have a girlfriend but you know but you're working on it yeah how has the Kickstarter community responded it's been amazing I mean it's just blown me away actually I've never really had this experience with social media either where we kind of were ready to go with our Kickstarter campaign and then we advertised it, both of us, on Facebook. And it's just like, you know, the whole viral phenomena and it just went nuts. Do you believe you look at yourself differently or do you believe that other people look at you differently? I think other people look at me differently. I think that's a good question. I don't I don't think I look at myself much differently, no. Hmm. I think there was a few hurdles, actually, when I was first coming out of hospital and there was each one was a little step and like coming out of hospital and feeling physically fit again was was, was one thing. And then I sort of moved back into my flat in London after staying with my parents for a little while. And that was another thing, you know, that I was independent still. And then and then after that, I just traveled on my own just to really say, look, I can take care of myself. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm I'm well. And I traveled in the U.S. actually for for three months and and in Central America for for three months as well. Now that you're a changed man or you believe other people look at you as a changed man, what do you live for? The word service kind of keeps coming back to. I'm I'm kind of changing my work. You know, it's a real cliche, but you want to do something more, more, more meaningful with your work particularly. Tommy, it was a pleasure to have you on the show and... Dude, I hope that everything goes well for you, your transition and people transitioning to you. And if anybody wants to find out more on this story or contribute to this documentary, go to kickstarter.com and type in The Day I Died. Tommy, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, man. Pleasure. What is Lady Saber and the Pirates of the Ineffable Ether? In a nutshell, it is a rollicking steampunk action adventure that follows our stalwart hero, the entirely fabulous, as she will be the first to tell you, Lady Seneca Sabre, the 14th Marchioness of Cascadia and captain of the good ship Pegasus. I want to welcome everybody back to DJ Grandpa's crib, uh, and I'm speaking with Greg Rucker. Well, he's one-third of this amazing web series that's trying to go to print. And it's a comic book. Uh, am I right, Greg? It's a comic book? Uh, it's a webcomic. And what we're trying to do after oh, almost two years of doing this thing online for free, we wanted to bring it to print. We wanted to make a trade that would take the first five chapters of this story we've done and allow people to, you know, open it on a table and read it in front of them as opposed to opening it on a laptop and read it in front of them. See, I was close. I was close. You were dead on. And it's called Lady Saber and the Pirates of the Ineffable Ether, Volume 1. We wanted a tongue twister. That's true. That's a hard (laughs) one to say. Good thing I'm not live. (laughs) Now, you've done just about everything. New York Times bestseller. You mentioned in your Kickstarter trailer about a million different comics you've been on, from like Superman to just, I mean, all sorts of superheroes. But this one is different. It's a heroine. I mean, she has a giant sword, too. I mean, she's impressive. She's our Lady Saber. Look, I've written lots of novels and I've written lots of comics. And in the realm of comics, you know, for companies like DC Comics and Marvel Comics, I have a reputation for writing these 
tough action hero women. Lady Saber is, yeah, I mean, she's she's just generally fabulous. And this isn't a superhero comic. This is an adventure comic. It has more in common with Indiana Jones than it does with Superman or Batman or, or Spider-Man like that. The incredible graphics by the Burchett graphic yeah. artist gentleman on your, that you mentioned on the trailer. I mean, it looks kind of like one of my favorite TV shows as a kid, Wild Wild West. Oh, yeah. He would love to hear that. That would make him grin like you wouldn't believe. You know, I didn't think any comic. I, I just thought Wild Wild West, and I was like, dude, that's one of my favorite TV shows. Wild Wild West is actually a really, really good comparison. If you're looking for genre, we would call it steampunk, you know, in that sense of alternate Victoriana history and steam-powered monstrosities and flying galleons. A lot of people forget that, you know, Victorian England and the American Old West are happening at the same time, that a lot of what you get in the American West are men and women really trying to imitate what they think is going on in England at the time. That sense of manners and of courtliness and of propriety and also very much of dress, you know, of style. They're really wearing very much the same styles. And that's, you know, we're fans of these pulp serials. Like I said, you know, the Indiana Jones and yeah. everything that led to it. But Rick and myself and, of course, Eric Newsom, our editor on the, on the project, we're all huge fans of the Western. So it was a no-brainer for us to sort of combine these things and mash them together. I invited you on the show because I have to say congratulations. You've surpassed minimum funding. Did you think that you would do that well on Kickstarter as quickly as you have? No. <laughs> it's funny, you know, um, Rick and Eric and I spent, I would have to say, at least eight months putting the campaign together. Wow. And all three of us felt that there was a huge responsibility on our part if we were going to go and try to crowdfund this, that we had to be able to show any potential backers of the project, this is what we're doing, this is what we want to do, right? This is the goal, this is, and then really illustrate, and this is how your money is going to be spent should we raise the funds. And we went to several printers, you know, to get quotes. We went over the campaign over and over again. We were really very, very careful and we really wanted to be as responsible as possible. And it's funny because Eric, Rick, and I, we have a weekly conference call to discuss what's going on with the strip. We were talking an awful lot last week, <laughs> more than just once a week. And during one of the calls, Eric pointed out that exactly three weeks prior, we had all been panicking about what would happen if we didn't fund. And now we're panicking because we did fund. And we're trying to figure out, okay, well, what happens next? How do we... How do we do this responsibly? How do you add responsible stretch goals? How do you address mistakes that you have discovered? Uh, because we've discovered we made a couple mistakes. How has the Kickstarter community treated you? Like the comments section, the, the backers, the, the, just the sheer support. The response has just been overwhelmingly positive. It's been so active and so dynamic and frankly, smart. I've gotten messages from backers who really have no vested interest other than, you know, they found us and they would like to see us succeed, you know, with fabulous suggestions, with wonderful questions. Several times when I've had interviews, 
I've said that Kickstarter is the only place where I recommend that you read the comment section. Yes. That, you know what? That is a perfect way to put it. Look, I, I work in comics, you know, and if you go to any comics website, reading the comics is a very, it's like playing Russian roulette, man. You know, I checked the comment section, I, I checked these messages, and it is just, and maybe it's because the people who are commenting, they have invested quite literally in seeing this thing come to pass. So they want it to be the best it can be. And that coincides very nicely with what we want. You know, we want to make a book. First and foremost, we want to make a book that people are going to like to own, that they're going to look at and think, this is well-made, this is beautiful, I will get enjoyment out of this. I just want to thank Greg. I want to thank Rick. Who's the third person again? Eric Newsom okay. is our editor and webmaster and designer, and really he's sort of the, the hidden third partner in this venture. Nothing happens without him doing it. So And see, he's the final third of the Supreme Team. That has launched Lady Saber and the Pirates of the Ineffable Ether, Volume 1. I don't know how I said that the second time and not tripped over it, but I you did. Got it. I did it. <laughs> Greg, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi, Kickstarter. My name is Daryl Coleman, and this is The Dream Series. The Dream Series is a set of limited edition laser-engraved wall maps for dreamers. Darrell, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, I see that you're on Kickstarter. I see that you're doing well. You have a very interesting laser-engraved maps of the world going on, and I really like that because I love maps a lot. I like topography and stuff like that, plate tectonics. So, I mean, anything with a map on it is kind of totally cool to me. Could you tell me a little bit about them, your project? I'm a designer, but I'm also an engineer. And, you know, my goal has been to create things that tangibly make people's lives better. So throughout my life, I've had several opportunities to travel abroad. And one of the things that I realized on my trips was sort of that maps come to represent something different for you once you've seen other places and experienced other people. You know, I was going through a, a time, you know, this previous year where I sort of had a little bit of downtime and was really needing to scratch my creative itch. So I figured I would make something that, you know, was representative of all the people that I'd met and sort of what my ultimate dream was, you know, in the world. And I think there are a lot of people that can identify with what maps represent you know, on that level. How has the Kickstarter community been treating you since you brought these maps for them to, uh, you know, perusal? The community has been fantastic. There's been an outpouring of support. I've been really humbled by the speed and the intensity of the response you know, to the project as a whole. I think people have resonated with the overall message that I'm putting out there. I've had a lot of positive comments from that, and I, I don't know, I'm really thankful that I put it up there and uh, that it's done so well. Do you have anything specifically that you'd like to say to those who've backed you so far? I'm incredibly excited to make your maps. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the enthusiasm. Okay, I understand that. You say you're a dreamer, and you say that quite a lot, so what are your dreams? My personal goal is always to enable the dreams of others, and I think if I can create products that do that, especially with underserved populations around the world, that's something that I think will just really 
sort of pulls at my soul. You said in your literature and your bio that, you know, you're this world traveler and it's allowed you to have a certain type of lifestyle and that wears well on you. My question is, what has traveling around the world and meeting all these different types of people and cultures, what has it taught you? It taught me that information exchange is one of the most important things that we can actually do. I've spent months at a time in rural areas in Nicaragua or Indonesia and Brazil, and you know, each time people were talking about how much value they gain, not even from the act of doing something, you know, selling a product or, or a good or anything like that, but just talking to people from different areas allows people to exchange information that, that can you know, empower them or improve their own lives. So uh, it's taught me you know, a lot about what I really care about. Right. You know, all these concepts I'm talking about, I can say them with confidence because they've been tested. You know, is this really what I want to do? Are these people really the people I want to serve? And in the end, it comes down to the people I've met being the driving force behind what I want to do with my life. I'm thinking of you as a world traveler. Now I'm thinking of you as a person who's a fixer and a builder. And what have you done in these countries to help out their quality of life? So when I first went to Nicaragua, I was doing um, I was doing research to start with on how access to electricity affects quality of life. So I designed a small wind turbine that was designed for that population there. I was doing research on its need, its use. That wind turbine didn't end up getting into the hands of people there. It just didn't make sense financially for them. But I did while I was there. I designed a you know solar refrigeration system right. that I left with a nonprofit that was down there. I've traveled to Indonesia, designed a freshwater um, catchment and storage system for the people on the island of Nusa Penida. And in Brazil, I was doing more research on sort of the need for eyeglasses and understanding how products are really distributed throughout the country. So I hope to have a greater impact, you know, going forward. But each of those experiences has taught me some pretty valuable stuff about myself. And how old are you, sir, if I may ask? I'm 24. Oh, you've done a lot in that short lifespan of yours here, man. That's, that's pretty cool, man. I look up to people like you, man. Thank you. You speak about designing products. Is this your first product or is it just one in a long line of products? Yeah, this is my first product that I've really, you know, released to the masses like this. Um, like I said, I had the other things that I sort of on. Those were mostly left in the hands of the nonprofits I was working with, the NGOs there. Right. This is the first product I've released, you know, to the world myself, to be produced myself, et cetera. Is there anything else you'd like to say to sell me on these maps before you go or the listeners so they can go to kickstarter.com and check out your dream series? When you make something that you initially also designed for yourself, you pour a lot of your soul into it. And I think that's something that comes through hopefully, in them. So people should definitely give them a, a look. And I think they'll be excited by what they see. Go to kickstarter.com and type in Dream Series. And if you can't find it there, there will always be links at djgrandpa.com for Mr. Coleman. Sir, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Hello, everybody. My name is Soprika Ivancha, and we are Fanfare Chocarli the Gypsy Brass Legends from the Wild Wild East. Our fans from Memphis, Tokyo, up to Berlin know us to be the fastest and funkiest brass band ever. One of this week's musical guests is Fanfare Chocolia. They're from Romania. Seriously, these guys rock. They're like a brass gypsy speed metal band and I'm totally impressed. 
I'm talking with one of their managers right now, Helmut. He's in Germany. We're doing the whole global thing right now. So, Helmut, could you tell me about Fanfare? Tell me about their music. Tell me about these guys. They seem bigger than life. Well, you have to imagine a small, tiny, dusty village in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of lovely highlands, a few hours after the last big city in a country of poverty. You have to imagine this small, tiny, dusty village and you are going into this village and then you are listening to plenty of brass musicians playing in the streets, playing in the courtyards, playing in the bar, playing wherever you even cannot imagine. And then you are going into this village and you see this 400 inhabitants, more or less, and all male adult people are playing brass. And this brass is played fast and funky. You can't escape. They learn it from six, seven years old. Uh, they get an instrument in the hands and they start to play, uh, following what they are listening from the parents or the grandparents. They don't know to do anything else, just a little bit agriculture in the garden or in, on, the, on the field. But the main business is the music, whenever, wherever they can. I see in the video, and the video is hilarious. I mean, it has chickens in it, it has goats, it has trains. I mean, these guys look like they have big giant cowboy hats on. They're talking about they're from the wild, wild east. I mean, what are you doing from Germany running around with guys like this? Well, my partner Henry, he went by luck actually. Uh, by luck he came into this village and he just listened to the music first time. We, we knew a lot of music from Romania. We, we knew the string and the accordion stuff and it's all very impressive. But coming from Germany and knowing the, the lazy German brass marsh music and then coming to Romania in this village and listening this fast funky sound, powerful, you, you can't escape, you get it in your stomach and you, you can't stand still, you just need to move. He was really impressed and he was crazy enough to say, I take these guys to Germany. The idea was to do it like a one-off, you know, let's let's do some dates, let's do a tour, right. let's have fun, let's enjoy this and share this with a German audience, and that's it. And uh, actually, yeah, he was crazy enough. He got me in the boat and we did this tour together and it was really fun just with uh, promoting the band with self-recorded tapes at this time. And uh, yeah, we had a good crowd and we saw the German audience is really going with this music. It was almost like you brought a rock and roll band to Germany or something, to liven it up or something. They, I bet these guys throw the livest parties. Absolutely rock and roll. It was The, the, the whole thing was uh, uh, with rock and roll attitude, actually. Uh, so for the band, it was impossible to imagine. Once Henry came there and he said, well, let's go on tour. He said, well, you're a crazy guy. Okay, well, well, why not? Okay, here you have my 
passport number and uh, they didn't really believe in but then taking the plane and going to Germany and playing venues for crazy German crowds right how many of these big guys are in the band well so this was the main issue at the beginning uh, usually a, a brass band a local brass band were minimum 15 musicians so oh. well you can imagine to move 15 musicians for the first time it was really tough so we said well let's try with 10 so first tour was with 10 but slowly we had to understand 12 is kind of minimum to make it proper sound so i mean for our ears even 10 was incredible great but they right. have to feel good as well and so the, the the yeah the compromise is 12 12 is the minimum that's all right i'm saying come to america with 20 but i, I know that costs too much I mean, when I pushed the button the first time on the video, I sent Henry, your other manager, a message. And I was like, please let me speak to these guys. I love these. I got to talk to them, please. And he, yeah. was, he was like, well, you know, they don't speak English that well. So, you know, would you mind talking to us? And I was like, OK, I was like, OK, that's the best I can get. That's the closest I can get to these guys. Because they remind me of cowboys. They remind me of the wild, wild west, even though they're saying it's the wild, wild east. I know you guys are businessmen, but it must have been like a labor of love. You know something? If you would have been businessmen 17 years ago, we never would do what we did. We haven't been at this time businessmen. After one and a half year, we knew them and we did this one really exciting tour and having a lot of fun, but also success. Then we became businessmen. Yes, then we understood, look, this could be a business. That's true. And then we started with Asphalt Tango Records and started to promote this music as a business. But believe me, this was too crazy to touch it as a businessman. Wow. You guys kind of like were smugglers then. You kind of like smuggle the whole culture from one place to another place. I mean, i.e. Germany and then the rest of the world. So, man, you, you guys were like black market dealers. <laughs> Sounds good, yeah. <laughs> no, anything to make it sound live. Helmet, I just wanted to say these guys are definitely DJ Grandpa approved. I really appreciate that you guys put in 17 years to bring me this story. <laughs> Thanks a lot, yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, DJ Grandpa. I want to welcome everybody back to the show. I'm talking with Al C. Walker. He's a documentarian, a filmmaker of the visual arts, you would say. He's out in New York, New York. He has a documentary called The Peacekeepers Global Initiative Documentary. It's on Kickstarter. Mr. Walker, welcome to the show. Hey there, hey there. How you doing there? How you doing? Why don't you tell me about this doc of yours, man, that people are from around the world are telling me about that I should check out? The documentary, The Peacekeepers, is actually a it's an organization. They have 22 chapters around the whole country. And their objective is to make young men responsible and live up to their expectations of men. 
I'm going to be following my main character, Captain Dennis Muhammad, who's the founder of the organization. Yes, sir. We're just going to follow his work and hear stories and, and document what this organization is doing around the country and how it's changing so many lives in different inner cities across the United States. I want to read your statistics, actually, that you put up on your Kickstarter website. You say 35 out of every 10,000 young black men between the ages of 18 and 24 years old are killed in homicides. Yes. I want to say that these facts and figures aren't that bad. These percentages aren't that bad. It must be the same thing with every other community, you know, with, with whites and with Latinos and, you know, just everybody, man, the whole melting pot. I went online, you know, because when you're a reporter, I've hung out enough around enough reporters. And the first thing you do is go to the source. So I tried to go to the source and look up statistics. And the statistics that I saw, if it's 35 out of every 10,000 young black men in America, when it comes to the Caucasian community, it's 17 out of every 10,000 young men, if, if I have the facts correct. Actually, that statistic, that was actually pulled from a county uh, in Florida, so it's not, I should have noted that on my account. It's not in the in the world or in the nation. That's from one county uh, in Florida. So it's oh, one county in Florida. gotcha, so gotcha, okay. That's why we want to bring the peacekeepers to the county where I'm from, which is Palm Beach County. Oh, gotcha. We want to bring the peacekeepers there because there's no chapter there. And if any city needs it, it's, it's, it's my city that needs it. It's, it's West Palm that needs an organization like Peacekeepers to make a difference and stop these black-on-black killings and, and all these young men just, just losing their lives at a, at a very early age. Where did the Peacekeepers start? And it touched me in such a way that I wanted to get the men when I was speaking to stand up and be men and go back out in that very community and make it safe. And so I made the men stand up in that meeting and become peacekeepers. And from that meeting, we got up and we went right out into the streets, which was unscripted. And we left out there with 75 people and we came back with 100. We picked up 25 people in the hood. And that was the beginning of the peacekeepers. And I started it in, in uh, uh, Houston and Detroit and 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 they start taking shape form and uh and the rest is history. In your Kickstarter video you said no one can do it alone. So how can we as a community, as a global community, help you? The biggest thing that someone can do is spread my Kickstarter account or spread the word about the peacekeepers or go on the peacekeepers.org to find out more information regarding right. the organization and the type of work that they do. Besides uh, donating funds to the cause of, of making sure that this film gets portrayed and can be professional as possible. Are you a young man, sir? Uh, yes, yes, I am. I'm 24 <laughs> years old, so that's why I keep saying yes and yes, sir. Dude, and nothing wrong with that. I'm very respectful. You know, I, I consider myself a, a first-class young man. Yes, sir. I try to be the best person I can be, so I'm sorry if, if saying yes, sir, and yes. Is a little, uh, is a little weird. It's not weird, man. Remember, I addressed you as yes, sir. <laughs> so yes. So yes. there's no problem with that. I asked if you were a young man because I wanted to know, have you been personally affected by this type of violence? I grew up in, in the city in, in West Palm Beach, you know, where crime is kind of like an everyday thing. Yes, sir. 
I've been around violence, you know, all my life growing up. But as, as I got older, I wanted to make a difference. And in order to make a difference, you have to start somewhere. So I, I had the opportunity to to, uh, to go play college ball and to graduate college. And yes. At the end of the day, I still always had the same dream of, of wanting to change the world and, and make a difference. It just takes that one person to come across you that can believe in you and that can see your dream with you and give you the opportunity to, to share your stories and be able to try to make a difference. Now, is there anything that you'd like to tell me about the peacekeepers, or is there anything you'd like to say that I haven't asked you that you would believe is important during this interview? One thing I would probably like to say about the peacekeepers is that the majority of these volunteers are senior citizens. Some are retired, some are, are workers, and to be able to document and tell the story of what these people are doing is just, it's not only fascinating, it's a blessing. And I think that a lot of young black men especially need to see so that they can learn from these older men who's putting their life on the line to, to try to make a difference in different inner cities across the country. Alcee, you're putting yourself along with these peacekeeper volunteers in harm's way to get this story out, to smuggle this story out, to broadcast this story. And that's something that you should be proud of, man. I'm glad that there are young men like you who have had violence in their lives, but have taken that violence and turned it into something positive. Like I said, that's something to be proud of, man. And thanks for coming on the show. I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be able to, to talk about my project and be able to, to uh, tell people what I'm actually doing. So at the end of the day, I just want to thank you, sir. And I really appreciate the opportunity. For anyone out there, go to kickstarter.com, type in the peacekeepers. Uh, peacekeepers, that's one word. Or you can go to our website, djgrandpa.com, and we'll have links always. Thank you. Have a good one. Before I go, I want to encourage all our listeners to like us on Facebook. Search words, DJ Grandpa's Crip. Or follow the link from our website, djgrandpa.com. I'd like to thank all our guests this week. I'd also like to thank our listeners. We couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music for DJ Grandpa's crib. I'd also like to thank Theron Kennedy, our director of marketing. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rufus. Thank you.